Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We are in between the Revelation series, Advent, Gospel Priorities, and I want to kick off our emphasis on Gospel Priorities this week, this year, with this passage from John 8, where Jesus declares Himself to be the truth. In our Gospel Priorities series, every year we want to remind ourselves of the priorities of the gospel as Jesus announced them in Luke 4 when He was repeating Isaiah 61. The Lord has anointed me to declare, to proclaim good news to the poor, release to the captive, to give sight to the blind, to declare liberty, release for those who are oppressed, and to declare the year of the Lord's favor. And uh, we try to illustrate that good news, the way it's going to be realized at the great day with every tribe, tongue, people, and nation by diversity in the pulpit. And then we try to preach on those themes that are outlined in Luke chapter 4. And this year we're going to focus in particular just on one, the sight to the blind. The Lord Jesus gives sight to the blind. Literally, yes, as we saw Him in His, in His earthly ministry so doing, but also in the worldview that He gives us as Christians, that He enables us to think His thoughts after Him. That is liberating. I want to begin the series today with a focus on the Christian mind and particularly what it means to have a Christian mind for truth, a commitment to truth. Harry Blameyers said this, you might think it very applicable today. Harry Blameyers, the British theologian, said, he announced in his book called The Christian Mind, there is no longer a Christian mind. He followed up that book with a post-Christian mind, and he said effectively the same thing. There still is no longer a Christian mind. You say, how relevant is that? That is very relevant to today. Harry Blameyers wrote that first sentence first in the 1960s. He was lamenting even then that there is a lack of consensus. There is a lack of Christians as a body thinking Christianly. Francis Schaeffer, the missionary, the Presbyterian missionary and evangelist and apologist who did most of his ministry for many decades in Switzerland, said, the Christian must be committed to true truth. True truth. What is that true truth that distinguishes a Christian mind, a Christian who thinks Christianly about this life and the next. I want to see it in this chapter, chapter 8 of John, where Jesus personifies a courageous commitment to the truth that is commended by an equally courageous love. True truth, a Christian mind, is one that is courageously committed to revealed truth that is commended by an equally courageous love. I'm going to read verses uh, 
1 through 10 of John chapter 8, and then verses 31 and 32. Now, you might see uh, some strange uh, comments here in your Bible at the beginning of John chapter 8. I don't want to get too far into these weeds, but uh, you might see a note like this, that the earliest manuscripts of, uh, of the New Testament do not contain this story of the woman caught in adultery. That, that is true that before the fifth and sixth centuries, we don't see this story in those very, very old manuscripts, but we do see it in most of the manuscripts. And it is a very old and reliable story. We're going to go with that as the church has historically recognized it, that this is a story that occurred in Jesus' life. It's in keeping with his behavior. It fits well within the gospel of John. And uh, these manuscripts are important to us. We have 15,000 manuscripts just of the New Testament. So it's remarkable that we even know that in a few manuscripts, this is not included. That should, instead of rocking our confidence in Scripture, it should establish our confidence in Scripture that the word that we have recorded in the New Testament is accurately confirmed by the comparison and contrast of 15,000 Greek manuscripts or cognate language manuscripts. So we're going to read verses 1 through 10 as Scripture, and then verses 31 and 32. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Verse 31. <clears throat> Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. One of my mentors early in my ministry was a man who became the founding professor of the business ethics department at Baylor University. Sorry, that's a triggering word to some of you this morning. And uh, congratulations, Jill and Gary Peak. But uh, forget about the university. He was an ethics professor there, founded the business ethics 
department, a very, very wise man. He was a moderator of two different, the assemblies of two different denominations, one the Reformed Presbyterians and the other Presbyterian Church in America. He told me once when I was asking him about that history of of that smaller denomination, the Reformed Presbyterians joining the Presbyterian Church in America, joining them, becoming one with them. I, I asked him about that. What was that like? Why did you do that? Why did you give up your 200-year history of, of Scottish Presbyterianism arriving on the shores of America, then to just go away with, do away with your name and join another church body? He said it was necessary. It was necessary because we forgot Ephesians 4.15. We had become very, very good at speaking the truth, but we had forgotten what it was like to speak the truth in love. And truth without love, he said, is no true truth, quoting Schaefer. We have become very good at speaking the truth but we have forgotten how to speak the truth in love. Could it be true of us individually? Is it something we need to lay at the feet of Jesus this morning, at the dawn of this year, the beginning of this year? I want to be one who stands for truth. Yes, Lord, I want to speak the truth, but I want to speak the true truth, truth that is spoken in love. Paul said that is the way, that is the only way that we will grow up into the mature man, the body, a mature body, the church, united to the head, even Jesus Christ. The only way to be a mature Christian, one reflecting the head of Jesus Christ, the one, uh, uh, an individual, a church reflecting Jesus Christ, the only way, he says, is to speak the truth in love. That requires two things. I know you have three things in your bulletin, but I rewrote this this morning. Two, two outline, two points that we must be committed to truth, and the second is we must commend it with love. We must be committed to truth. Jesus says in verse 31 to the Jews, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. What is the truth according to Jesus? What is it to be true, to speak the truth, to live truly? There are four characteristics of true truth, of biblical truth, of the only truth. There are four characteristics, and uh, they spell the word soar, S-O-A-R. First of all, This true truth is supernatural. It describes a supernatural kingdom. You notice uh, how Jesus said in verses 13 to 18, the Pharisees were questioning him about bearing witness to himself. And he said, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from, where I am going, but you don't know where I come from or where I'm going because you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. 
Jesus came representing a kingdom that is supernatural, that is superior to all other kingdoms. It comes from outside our world and judges our world. That's contrary to the world we have become adapted to, conformed to often, the one we are being pressured to submit to. It is interesting that the Matrix series of movies has become popular again. The fourth one has been made. I, uh, the first one was made in 1999, and as a professor of homiletics, I heard so many illustrations from the Matrix, I had to ban it for a while. No more illustrations from the Matrix or Braveheart. Let's try something new. So now I'm breaking my rule. I'm using an illustration from the Matrix because the first movie seemed so outrageous, didn't it? So fantastical that there could be a system, a digital system that everybody was locked into, was trapped into, and didn't know it and wasn't aware of it. Yet it's not so hard to believe anymore, is it? Morpheus says to Neo, the Matrix is a system. The system is our enemy. Look around, businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters. They're all locked in it. They're trapped in it. They don't know it. We must get them out of it. They must see it for themselves. Supernatural truth is what Jesus gives us. A truth that comes from the outside, from heaven, from the creator of all reality. And he speaks critically into our world and he says, you are not trapped here. It doesn't matter what the zeitgeist or the worldview of the age is, what everybody else is saying, what everybody else is thinking, what the algorithms are feeding you. You are not trapped in this system. I have come, I bear witness to a kingdom that shall never end, a kingdom that measures all reality and determines whether it is true or false. Second characteristic of true truth is that it's objective. It is objective. We believe in objective facts versus subjective opinions. You see what Jesus says in verse 39, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to him, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. What's the point he's making? If you truly were children of God, you would be acting like children of God. If you believed, if you really did believe in what you say you believe in, you would live it out. But as it is, you are hypocrites. Those are the facts. You know that I am the Savior, Jesus says. Jesus and other places said, you know I am the Messiah. It's been proven to you by my works, and you know my works cannot deny me. What was happening? They knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but because they did not want to let go of their private kingdoms, because they had influence, or they had uh, comfort, or they had had, uh, wealth, or or uh, prosperity, they didn't want to let go of that. Others did not want to let go of their aspirations for a particular kingdom that would give them political liberation. And so they chose to kill the Messiah rather than let go 
of their personal kingdoms. They chose to kill the Messiah rather than to let go of their personal kingdoms. Could that be the case with you or me or the church at large today? We know what the Messiah is saying. We know what Jesus Christ says, what he demands. But it is too much because it disturbs our peace or doesn't bring the attainment we want. And so we'd rather do away with the Messiah. But Jesus insists that we look at the facts. He is the true Savior. It doesn't matter what the rest of the world says. It doesn't matter what the world tries to, how the world tries to shape reality by language. The facts are the facts as God has created them. And it's better to suffer. It is better to suffer loss. It is better to suffer pain than to live in the delusion of subjectivity because it seems more comfortable or more pleasant or more confirming for the moment. Jesus lays a cross, a, a, a cross, a cross, a sword across every, every precious notion and says, are you believing the facts of my kingdom or the falsehoods of your own kingdom? The truth of Christ is objective. One of Mark Zuckerberg's early mentors, Robert McNamee, uh, said this, Facebook's algorithms give users what they want. So each person's news feed, which includes television news determined by social algorithms as well. Facebook's algorithms give users what they want. So each news feed becomes a unique reality, a filter bubble that creates the illusion that most people the user knows believe the same things. Whether you're getting your news from social media or from a channel or a newspaper, just one, and you think that that describes the way most people think, you are succumbing to the algorithms of a digital world that was only thought to be fantastical when the matrix was originally made. We must constantly put ourselves under the objectivity of Scripture, no matter how unpopular it makes us or how alone it makes us in our perspective. Third characteristic of biblical truth, of true truth, is that it's authoritative. It comes from Jesus Himself, verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. In other words, you either, we either submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and find freedom and truth, or we follow any other way, even our prejudiced so-called Christian opinions, and we will be enslaved. There's only one authority in our lives. It must be Jesus Christ as it is revealed in His Word and to our consciences. And finally, true truth is this, it is revealed. It's revealed in Scripture, it's revealed in creation, it's revealed in our 
consciences. Verse 28, Jesus says, when you lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father spoke to me. Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And verse 55, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar, but I do know him and keep his word. Jesus came to reveal in his flesh the word of God. Jesus, through his apostles and through prophets before him, revealed the word in Scripture. And even if we don't have Scripture, when we look at creation, the Bible says we can't deny the divine power and the invisible attributes of God, the invisible power and the divine nature of God. It's also confirmed in our consciences as he has impressed on our consciences the law of God. So that when we are talking to anyone, whether they're Christian or not, we are speaking a language that they vaguely remember, realize, because they're made in the image of God. So we are basing the way we live, the way we think, the way we speak on revealed truth. Not truth that is captured inside ourselves, not truth that is, that is withheld from every living soul, but we are speaking, living according to truth that is spelled out in Scripture and finds resonance with the world as it is created and as we are naturally imprinted by God's grace. We are not trapped in a system. We have true truth from Jesus Christ of a supernatural kingdom that has objective facts that fits with the way the world is supposed to work and the way it does work, that is authoritative from the God who made the world in the first place, and it is revealed. It's not kept a secret. It's revealed generally in creation and specially in God's Word. But holding to that true truth is not alone sufficient. If we're going to persuade others, bring others with us, if we're going to live in a way that, 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 uh, that imitates the Lord Jesus, it must be wedded to love. I was convicted about this point a number of years ago, and I was uh, uh, doing a joint funeral with an African-American pastor in St. Louis. We were burying one of my members, but, but uh, we had a very beautiful experience of holding a, uh, a, the funeral service for uh, Mr. Bickle in our church and the African-American Presbyterian pastor preached in our church. And then, and then we had another funeral in the African-American church, and I preached there. And then together, we did the graveside at the National Cemetery. Now, it was a strange scene, and especially in those days in, in, uh, in St. Louis, and, and it got the attention of the officer in charge. You're always accompanied by an officer at a National Cemetery, and you have to do everything just the way he or she says. And this officer was a captain in the Air Force, and She'd taken us to the graveside, and, 
And uh, after we were done, she took me aside and she asked a startling question. This is the early 90s. She said, I see that you're a Presbyterian. I see that you're both Presbyterians. I wonder if you're one of those Presbyterians who hates homosexuals. Not my word, hers. What well, stunned me because the large mainline denomination had just approved uh, gay marriage. And I, I said, uh, I, I'm not sure I understand your question. And she said, do you hate homosexuals? No, ma'am, I do not. And my church does not. We love everyone made in the image of God. There are those who would, who would call themselves, identify as homosexuals in our church, even on our staff. We do not hate them. Oh, well, then you, then she said, looking relieved, uh, then you approve of their practicing their lifestyle, their, their sexuality. And I said, uh, no, officer, we do not. Well, then you do hate them. No, we do not hate anyone, but we, we do stand in the way or try to warn people of sins that are not good for them or glorifying to God. I have to preach them to myself. I said, I'm not a homosexual, but I am certainly a broken sexual being. And then I have all kinds of materialists and, and other kinds of addicts. And I have people in my church who have all kinds of things wrong with them. Every one of them comes in the church. We love them, but we oppose those things which God calls sin. She was furious and so frustrated. And then I saw just a, a moment of, of uh, just a cracked door. And I said, who has hurt you? She said, the church my daughter, years ago, went to her church youth group. She named the church a prominent church in our town. And my daughter said she was struggling with these feelings. She was, she was attracted to other girls. and She wanted to share that burden with her friends. And her friends mocked her, made fun of her, drove her away. I said, I can believe that could happen, and it grieves me, and I'm so sorry. And do you think your daughter would come to our church? We had a softened conversation. I said we wouldn't try to fix her, but we would love her and try to confess our sins as well and walk in truth together. Her daughter never came. But many others with all kinds of broken conditions came to that church as they come to this church. And we speak the truth to ourselves, to everyone. Even if it's hard truth, we never give up, we never pull away. We walk that hard road with people we try to. And Jesus representing a Jesus who didn't always tell us what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. I had a great 
relationship over the years with that woman. There's no, there's no great re, uh, result of those conversations of being able to meet her daughter, though I asked to meet her. But it was convicting to me to see that I had done the same thing to others. That I was good at speaking the truth. And that young woman needed to hear truth, but that truth was insufficient without love. What she heard first was fear and condemnation and judgment. And that rang so loudly she could not hear the love of Jesus Christ. So the next point that Jesus illustrates to us is not only the necessity of speaking this truth, being committed to this truth that is supernatural, objective, authoritative, and revelational, but it is commended by love. Let me show you from the book, from this story about this woman the so-called woman, the woman so-called caught in adultery. Others have said this is a story about men caught in hypocrisy. Jesus demonstrates that his truth is better and more loving than any other by first of all showing that it is supernatural. He says to her, <clears throat> uh, go and sin no more. How is that an evidence of supernatural truth? It is because he treats her, he liberates her to become kings, become a king. You know, the early church uh, preached liberating grace to slaves and women in particular who were put down by telling them that they were not victims, they were not subjected to the stars or to fate, but that they were free to choose sin and righteousness. You are not victims. You are not slaves. You are kings. So he tells, he says to this woman who is here condemning you, no one is here. Go and sin no more. Do the right thing because you are enabled to. That's the supernatural truth that we declare of the kingdom of God. It is liberating, liberating us to become the kings we really are. We're not subjected to our genes. We are not doomed to repeat the past. We're not subjected to our world. We're not fatalistically determined to live out what we have inherited from our families. But Jesus Christ, because his kingdom comes from the outside in, comes from the outside of this world in, outside of us in, it liberates us to live as kings. Secondly, it is liberating in its justice. This, this truth is objective. He points out the hypocrisies of, of the accusers. Yes, Moses' law prescribed capital punishment for those caught in adultery, but for both of those caught in adultery and for those who were actually caught in the act. There are two or three witnesses caught them in the act. The, 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 the standard was so high that uh, capital punishment was rarely carried out in the Old Testament. <clears throat> These did not catch her in the act, presumably. No two or three witnesses are brought forth. These were exposed as hypocrites. Jesus insisted on justice, and he brought it as the sovereign son of God. In submitting herself to Jesus, 
even though it exposed, presumably, her sin. She found liberation in his true justice. And then the truth of God is commended to us in its authoritative nature because it lovingly liberates us from shame. It doesn't matter who tells you that you are to be shamed or you are to be rejected. When Jesus says to you, you are free, you are free indeed. When Jesus says to you as to the woman, who is here to condemn you? I don't condemn you. In other words, it doesn't matter who else condemns you. I'm the only one who has the right to. And when I tell you that in my blood, in my righteousness, you are justified, you are free of shame. And Jesus' true truth is better than all others because it is revealed. It is a liberating proof. <clears throat> Jesus looked around and everyone had left, beginning with the oldest ones first. And this is the way we're going to commend the gospel to this world. It will ultimately be by outloving them. It's not merely by loving them. But it's not merely by preaching the truth either. It is by declaring the truth in the context of real love, doing those things practically that no one else is doing so that though they have to be through gritted teeth say, I will not, I cannot reject those Christians because they're doing things that I'm not doing. They're doing what they say they believe in. And it resonates with the revelation that I see in this creation and in my heart. I had to learn this another hard way <clears throat> when I was in my previous church. This idea that truth is only effective when it is commended with love. For a number of years, I was invited to be on a panel at the local medical school, and the forum was called Faith and Choice. And they served a free pizza and uh, all the starving medical students came and uh, some of the professors as well. And there were nine of us on the panel, all of us representing various religions. And we were supposed to speak out of our respective faith to a woman's right to choose whether to have her baby or abort it. I was only one of two pro-life members of that panel were National Baptists or Southern Baptists. There was a, a, a rabbi, an imam, uh, a couple of Presbyterians, and a member of the Metro, and a pastor in the Metropolitan Community Church. A Roman Catholic priest and I were the pro-life representatives. The Roman Catholic priest was a, a physician turned priest. We each opened our, with our statements, and I would open with my statement, and I would go roughly along this four-point outline of truth, that I, we serve a supernatural God who deals in objective facts of when birth begins, when life begins. And I speak by the authority of the Word of God that is revealed in Scripture and, and uh, confirmed to our consciences that every life is precious and every life should be protected. And someday we will be judged for the way we treat life. Now, those were usually miserable experiences because if I had just said, it is my private opinion and I would not force it on anyone else, I would not commit it to anyone else, I respect everybody else's opinion, I would have gotten along fine, but it always turned ugly. 
and it became a debate. And for years, there was just a debate. And then I, I realized something else needed to be added. There was a lot of speaking of what I thought was truth, but it was never commended with love. First, by my own, my own uh, affect and my, the way I dealt with those others on the panel, but also because I never described how much better life was, commitment to life. And so one year I said this, I I need to explain as well what the people of my church do. And I could say the same things about this church, that my people are committed to the lives of children. They, they, they love, we love our children ourselves. We, we nourish them and nurture them, but we also uh, adopt those who don't have a home. We foster care. We we, uh, we adopt special needs children. We adopt internationally. We care for women. We have compassion for those women who have had abortions. And we bring the healing, love, and hope and forgiveness of Jesus to them and to their husbands. And, and we care for those women who have unplanned pregnancies and have no place to go. And we take them into our homes and we, we help them take care of their children or provide for them, provide safe places for them. Some of my people uh, intervene when women are being trafficked and put themselves in in dangers in in harm's way to bring those women into their homes and get them into a safe place. We take care of the elderly, providing social networks, attending to widows in our parishes, and then we, we care for the poor. We try to teach them to read. We try to help them break out of cyclical poverty. We care for their children. We, we provide health care for the poor. We provide health care for prostitutes and for the women who are in the dance clubs just a block away from the church where we were. We, we try to imitate the love of Jesus Christ by being pro-life for all of life. Now, what was different that year is that though my colleagues snarled at me, they really, couldn't, they really couldn't criticize what our people were doing. I was just bragging on our people, not on me. And then an amazing thing happened with the moderator, the senior resident who brought the whole meeting together. She came up afterwards. She was an admitted atheist with a Jewish background. And she said, Pastor Robertson, I'd like to have your contact information because you were the only person on the panel who seemed to be offering resources to women who are truly in need. And every day in our rotation in the ER, in our women's clinic, we have women who are at the end of their ropes. They're desperate. It's one thing to tell them that they have a choice. It's another thing to enable them to make a positive choice, to find resources that would really dignify them as human beings. I could say the same about you, Second Press, and the works we are behind and doing, but let us do more. It's part of what we are, we are thinking about in gospel priorities, that we are really imitating the Lord Jesus by proclaiming good news to the poor, release to the captives, sight to the blind, and the year of jubilee, the year of setting the captive free. Let us not only stand for the truth, speak the truth with boldness and with courage, 
but commend it with a love that shuts the mouths of the accusers. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we have looked at hard things, ethically hard things, maybe even offensive things today. We thank you, Lord, that you never offend us in order to merely to hurt us. You offend us to heal us. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would not, be, would not stumble with offense, but rather we would be liberated by the cross of Christ, the superior love of His truth. We repent, Lord, of the ways we have misrepresented Your truth the way we have forgotten to love. We pray, O Lord, that in this coming year, you would grant us repentance and humility, that we would love even as we stand for the truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, for Second Presbyterian Church, the life, the courage, involvement, activity you have given to her. Please make us, continue to make us, a light that is not hidden, but shines in such a way by her good deeds that others will glorify our Father in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.